Hello, this is Rabbi Mark Soloway. Welcome to A Dash of Drush, weekly reflections on our world through the lens of Torah. We ritualize how we end a book of Torah, but we don't necessarily ritualize how we begin a new book of Torah. Last week we ended the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, and and I talked about that chazak, chazak, v'nit chazak in the context of a conversation about um, dreamers and visionaries and builders. And I quoted extensively from a Devar Torah, a, uh, an email um, Torah teaching that went out from Dina Weiss. Um, this week I'm actually in New York and I am studying with a group of about 80 rabbis, I think, from all over um, actually the world, really, and from all kinds of different denominations at Hadar, which is a wonderful egalitarian yeshiva on the Upper West Side of New York. And Dina Weiss is a teacher there, and I am sitting with her right now to talk about the beginning of this new book, this new book that we're beginning, the third book of Torah, Vayikra, which begins, it's known as the, you know, the Torah Kohanim uh, in, by the rabbis, the Torah of the of the priests, the Levitical code. It's all of this kind of intense sacrifice. So it's quite a, a jarring transition in a way to go from all of the amazing narratives of Shemot and that whole redemption narrative and so much um, to say about all of that. And then we go into this place of just many parshas talking about the the intricate details of the korbanot of the sacrifices. So, just going to reflect for a little while with here with Dina, um, talking about that. Hi, Dina. Hi. So fun to be here. It's great to have you here. So, what's your first reaction to that? That uh, how we how we make that transition from from this juicy book of Exodus into the bloody book of Leviticus. Um, it's interesting that I don't feel that the transition is necessarily so abrupt. Um, when we get to the end of Shmo, when we get to the end of Exodus, we have the process of building the Mishkan, building the tabernacle, and the hope that God is going to move into this home. Um, and I think whenever you're in a new domestic situation with new people, you have to work out who is going to be doing the dishes on Monday and who is going to be doing the dishes on Tuesday, and sort of what the nitty-gritty, uh, what it really means to be living in a small space <laughs> with someone else. Um, and it happens to be that we... Our orientation towards the Mishkan is that this is really God's space in which we are guests. And the way that I like to think about the laws of Vayikra are that God is just telling us sort of how to behave in his home. Um, and there's the small version of that, which is how do I do these particular sacrifices that God is expecting me to do while I'm there, me being the Kohen or the priest. Um, but also, I think if you pay attention to some of the laws, you can also read it more broadly. How do I behave in God's world, where I'm also, in some ways, always a guest? So being a guest in God's space, being a guest in God's world. So it's specifically, obviously, you're talking about like what the experience of being a Kohen, who are the main functionaries in that space. So how, how do we... I mean, can you think of specific examples that, that the book gives us of the those details that can translate into into the lives that we leave. I mean, obviously, tefillah, prayer is one of them, you know, and I talked a lot about that last year when we were talking about these books, but I mean, what, what other ways? Well, I think less about the specifics and more about the fact of the karbanot, that there's a very sort of precise way in which you're supposed to do it. Um, and it's not supposed to be guided by what you think is 
logical. It's guided by what God thinks is proper. And that orientation on its own, mm. sort of really stepping out of what do I think is the smartest or best way to do something and stepping into what do you want, right? How can I do what you want? Mm. To me is the greatest contribution to studying Sefer Vayikra. And I think actually becomes more and more important as we move further and further away from a sacrificial system that feels meaningful to us. We're able to step into, I'm not doing this because it's meaningful to me, because I don't understand it and I might not even like it, but I'm getting into it, I'm figuring it out because it's meaningful to you. Um, so that orientation on its own. It's like I an antidote to narcissism. It's an antidote to narcissism, good, um, is one component that I think is really important. And there are some details right, in the offering of the sacrifices that if you pay attention to them are really interesting. Certain rules about mindset, that if you have, if you have an intention to sacrifice in the wrong way or to eat the sacrifice at the wrong time, you invalidate the sacrifice. Right? That says much more about intent and sort of the role and the importance of intent than it does about this particular sacrifice. And we only find that real engagement with intent in the laws of that sacrifice. We don't get it anywhere else. Um, so I think if you're looking for those gems, you can find them. <laughs> um, although I do agree that it's a process of really having to take a step back and say maybe what is meaningful to me right now in this moment in Jewish history is not what is objectively most meaningful. It is not objectively what's most important. Mm. So we as sort of quote-unquote liberal Jews are constantly looking to construct new meanings and make everything accessible and meaningful and but you're perhaps I'm hearing and what you're suggesting is that 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 framework for meaning is there we just we just need to resensitize ourselves to how we how we tune into it how we connect to it yeah I do I do think that there are moments of relevance that carry through and moments of meaning, and it's a specific type of challenge, right? To read something as relevant to you when it doesn't necessarily seem like it's relevant to you. There's an amazing midrash that talks about um, a practice which is no longer totally popular, but it's not gone. <laughs> of um, starting, what's coming. yeah, of starting um, studies, starting to learn the chumash with Sefer Vayikra. You don't start with Breshit, with the story of the creation of the world. You don't start with Shmot, with the creation of the Jewish people. You start with Vayikra. Um, and the answer that the Midrash supplies for why children start studying the Torah with Vayikra is that just like the children are pure, so too the Karbanot, the sacrifices are pure, need to be dealt with purity. So let those that are pure engage with that which is pure. Right? And there's some assumption here that it's not about what you are conscious of finding interesting or finding relevant. Children at this age don't find anything that you're going to teach them necessarily you know, inherently interesting or relevant, but that it has, um, has a quality that matches them, that they engage with it because it makes sense. Um, and I, I take that as a challenge. Right? How can I see these texts and these mm. sacrifices as being something that are reflective of where I'm at and, are, and do have something to do with the way that I live and I operate in the world? I appreciate that being a, an assumption of that midrash. 
yes, this has to do with you. It's almost identical with you. Uh-huh. And you have to step into it and figure out how to make that real. Wow, so it's almost like a, a, a Jewish educational manifesto. I mean, in a sense, that's quite countercultural, actually, because so much of what we think of when we think of education is about being you know, child-centered, about the experience and the individuality of the student. But you're saying that perhaps, I mean, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that we actually can see and hear this, the students more if we allow the, the, the vessel of, of the tradition and the, and the vessel of even parts of the tradition that seem alienating to us to actually hold that space for them to, to find their own meaning. Is that... Uh, it's not quite <laughs> no. um, what I what I was going towards. I'll try to try to restate it. I think that the teaching about the children who are pure engaging with this Torah that is about purity says that the Torah isn't only there to teach you things that you don't know. It's also there to reflect who you are. And seeing the Torah as reflecting who you are requires a different way of reading Mm. than looking at the Torah for lessons or for meaning. And it requires um, a kind of orientation of sort of trust, right? And I think that's why the children is such a good example of this. They trust you to sort of guide them in this process of learning because they're starting from this blankness. And I think the real reason why we um, teach children with Sefer Vayikra is A, the children do well. They're actually better at learning Sefer Vayikra than adults. They don't have the same um, hang-ups about what's interesting or not interesting. They get into the details. They get into the blood. Like, that's fun for them in a way that adults that have sort of an accretion of lifetime of experience, it's less fun for them. Um, And often they're better at absorbing that information, right? Their brains are pliable and you get them Mm. when they're young. And once they already know it and it's already a part of them, then they can move on to something else. Um, So there is, I think, like a really interesting type of strategy that's being employed there. Get them before they think it's uninteresting and get them while they're able to really succeed in it. Um, in a way that if they start when they're adults, they're not going to necessarily see themselves in it. They're not necessarily going to feel excited over the mastery of it. I love that. I'd like to sort of hone in and get a bit more specific because they're obviously, it is about the details and, and I believe you wrote a piece. And by the way, if you want to see Dina's weekly uh, commentaries on the Torah. They, she's writing them every week at the moment. Can find where? How can they find those? You can go to hadar.org and h a d a r dot o r g, and you can just look for my name, Dina Weiss, D e n a w e i s s, and it'll pop up. Great, because the, t- the title for this week was something about sacred and mundane, or finding the sacred and the mundane, or something like that. But I think I think the the point the point is you talked a lot about salt. You talked about the the mincha uh, offering, which is the 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 um, what we associate with afternoons, but really is about a grain offering rather than the meat offering. There's all of the different types of the reasons why you would bring a sacrifice, whether it's a, 
a sham, a guilt offering, or a chatat, a sin offering, or whether it's a, a, a shlamim or an olah. I mean, there's all of these. It goes into great detail these next few. So I, I don't want to prescribe which, but I mean, perhaps you can just choose one or two of the of the very specific details of the sacrifice and how we how you make meaning out of that, or or just how you relate to that. Well, what I appreciate about an asham or a chatat offering, these sin offerings, um, is that I think that it gives you something concrete to do. And often when you're in a situation where you've done something that you're not proud of, you feel helpless. And having a concrete process is something that I feel the absence of. I don't necessarily feel drawn to the blood find the sacrifice of animals to be a little queasy. Um, but I do, I do appreciate the concreteness, um, the reality that the sacrifices ascribe to sin and the availability of here's something that you can do and succeed at when you're feeling like I failed and I want to rectify that. The other sacrifice that I think is really fun and people don't necessarily think about is the shlamim. Um, which ironically Can you explain is, what it is? Yes. Before, yeah. Which ironically is the least shalim, it's the least complete of the sacrifices. A zevach shlamim is essentially a barbecue. It is the sacrifice that has the largest portion of meat that goes back to the people who bring it. So a lot of sacrifice, the olah, for example, is totally burnt. And then there are other sacrifices where the kohanim, the priests will eat more of the sacrifice. The shlamim is really a barbecue. And it has these strict regulations that I spoke about earlier about how many days that you're allowed to eat the meat for. So if you sacrifice this large animal to eat, you're gonna have to invite friends, right? Because you have a limited amount of time in which you can eat this meat. You can't turn it into jerky and sort of hold on to it forever. Um, so I think there's this really beautiful component of there's a sacrifice that's designed to be a party, right? That really is about coming to the temple and being an occasion for people to provide a meal for each other and celebrate. But what are the reasons the Torah gives for bringing the shlamim? The korban shlamim is just brought out of the goodness of your heart, usually. So it's, right, so it's just something you you want to do. It's not like there's no reparation or anything like that. Right, it is not a sacrifice for reparation. It's a sacrifice for celebration. Yeah. So celebration, expiation, um, uh, what are some of the other reasons, you know, some of those tropes that, 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 that recur in terms of what, why someone would bring a, a sacrifice? So if to add another Asian, um, <laughs> I would say something along the lines of congregation, right? The term moed, which is the term that's used for festivals, really has to do with convening and gathering. And having a sacrifice for these festivals gives a reason for everybody to come together three times a year. And I think that a lot of the sacrificial rites that we would still like to hold on to but can't are circled around, um, focused around the need for us to come together. Mm -hmm. And having a central place where everybody goes at certain times and you come together, extremely powerful. Um, it's something that's really lost. And, that's, and those sacrifices are not personal sacrifices where I have a reason to go. The calendar determines that there's going to be a sacrifice and I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be a part of that. How's that different from a nice kiddish? <laughs> it's just a larger scale. It <laughs> might not be different. 
right? It might just be a larger scale. So celebration, congregation, expiation, any other Asians? I feel like a spoken word piece coming on. Right. I don't know if there are any other Asians, but I do. I think that there's a sense of closeness. You know, the language of Korban people have spoke about, spoken about that coming from the word meaning to come close. Um, Le Karev, the, the Hebrew verb is about and Kruvim, a relative, so it's all connected and Korbanot is you know, possibly etymologi- etymologically related to carbon. I don't know, it's like <laughs> about burning, but it's also about coming close, which is different to the English word sacrifice. I think that's the point with you, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that clarification. I think that there's just, uh, people have a need to go somewhere, to feel close. Mm-hmm. And there being some zone where you are taught that God is there and because you're taught that God is there when you go there you feel that God is there and once you're there you're going to bring a sacrifice but really it's about being able to get to that place um, and being provided with a framework that gives you an excuse right to go there Mm. and I think there are a lot of you know secular activities that we do that are really just an excuse for people to get together um, either you know, one-on-one or larger family circumstances. Um, And we know, right, that when we go out to eat in a restaurant with a friend, that is very little to do with the food and has to do with having something to do together. And I think that one way to think about the Korbanot is, well, I want to get together with God. What are we going to do together? Well, I guess I'm going to bring a sacrifice and that's going to give us an activity that sort of validates or (laughs) encourages um, having this time for us to get together. So I guess a a final question then, because the, I mean, not just the, the reading in the Torah that we're going to be doing of these sacrifices. I mean, it, the sacrifices come into traditional liturgy like so much. I mean, reading them every day um, in traditional communities before before the morning prayers. Um, you know, at the end of every Amidah, the central prayer, like there's a kind of little prayer that wants us to restore the service of the temple, which is basically mean sacrifice. So, uh, you know, I think you're someone who prays every day. What what do you what do you pray for when you pray for a restoration of, of temple service? That's a great question. I think that what I'm praying for are all of the things that I think the Corbonote represents and sort of the, um, the possibility of having something concrete and real and focused. I don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know what I'm theologically required to believe. Um, but what I think is valuable about the Corbonote is is the concreteness and is the closeness and that's what i'm longing for when i say that i want that to come back Mm, beautiful i think uh, that's a great final word i want to just say again that the the gift for me as a as a rabbi being here with with you know with you and other teachers at, at hadar learning this week has been enormous and there is a sense that the act of study is sometimes like an act of, of service connected very much to the korbanot and so i want to 
just if any of what we spoke about today has sort of whetted anybody's appetite for for more about the sacrifices i mean there are so many opportunities to to learn about them on certainly on hadar's website um, again hadar.org uh, but you know there's there's a lot of richness in studying these texts that may seem distant and ancient and even distasteful and disgusting but there's there's a lot of a lot of depth and we've just touched the surface today and um, thank you so much for for agreeing to speak to me Dina thank you thank you bye-bye thank you for listening to a dash and drush we will see you next time